first reading is Psalm 58. It's 408 in your pew Bibles. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge uprightly amongst men? No, in your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skilful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted, like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child. May they not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then men will say, Surely the righteous are still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Testament reading is on page 780 in the Church Bible. It's Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell from Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it 
and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, It must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they descended, they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you rushed and closed that uh, chapter of Acts, reopen it. Uh, we're working our way through it, but uh, most importantly, we're hoping that God might be working through it in us. So let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we uh, thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you give us your word. Uh, we thank you for the way that it both uh, comforts and challenges us. Uh, Father, we ask that you would do that this morning. For those of us who've come needing comfort, uh, provide it. Uh, for those of us who've become too comfortable, stir us again. Uh, Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all our hearts this morning would be pleasing in your sight. You, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just had Acts 12 read. What were your first impressions as you heard it read? You know, angelic appearances, uh, divine rescue, instant judgment. Yeah, how does a chapter like that fit with your picture of God? How does it fit with your expectations of him? Now, the first article of the Anglican Church speaks of our God having infinite power, wisdom and goodness, infinite power. Is that how you understand the power of God, as infinite? I've read commentators this week, uh, biblical scholars, who have looked at this passage, Acts 12, and they've found ways to explain how Peter could have gotten out uh, without resorting to those kind of miraculous explanations. And their response at that point tells me more about them and their assumptions than it does about God. Now, they are seeking to, to understand this event with an assumption that God's power is somehow finite, is limited, has barriers. Now, how powerful is your God? You need to ask that question because your expectation of God changes everything. You know, a small God, 
Limited power, can't do much. He's not going to really muster much confidence in you, is he? You're not really going to ask much of a God who can't do very much. A little God who, who needs stories made up to you know, kind of embellish his reputation. He, he can only de- demand so much of you. But a God who knows no barriers, he is worth throwing in your lot with. You know, a God who, who has unlimited, infinite power, he is worth pursuing and obeying. He is worth trusting with everything. How powerful is your God? So in Acts 1 verse 8, the, the risen Christ uh, commissioned his disciples and said, you'll receive uh, power from, from on high, the Holy Spirit, when he comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, and unto the ends of the earth. And from that point on, um, the testimony to Jesus in Acts has kind of swung back and forth. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll, you'll notice this expansion gets met with opposition and growth kind of gets followed by a little bit of shrinkage and scattering. And, and this cycle helps us make sense of why Acts 12 is here. So if you're reading the, the, the book as a narrative, you, you could actually edit chapter 12 out and no one would notice. See, at the end of verse 11, uh, Barnabas and Saul get sent by the elders uh, and 12 verse 25, they return. You could just kind of cut chapter 12 out. It doesn't help the plot go any further. So what's it doing there? It's not written to advance the plot, it's written to remind. Remind us that in the, the swinging pendulum of, of gospel expansion and opposition, that God is unstoppable. He will prevail. That's the point I want us leaving with this morning, that that God is unstoppable and will prevail. Acts 12 is not shy, it doesn't hide about the fact that uh, there is opposition from the world to the good news of Jesus. Uh, 12 verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who had belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Uh, this particular Herod is, is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he was grandson of the Herod you might know better, Herod the Great, who, you know, the guy who had John the Baptist's head removed. This is his grandson. Uh, and like his grandfather, he is a guy who will do anything to hang on to his power. So in verse 2, he gets James, the, the brother of John, one of the closest friends of Jesus, uh, puts him to the sword. He has him beheaded. Now, he sees that it delights the Jewish community. And so already we're seeing oppositions increase. Like previously there was an openness in the Jewish community to hear more of Jesus, but now it seems that, that that's kind of disappearing. Uh, and Herod, in verse 3, wants to keep them happy. He wants to, you know, as someone who, I suppose, like any person who's dependent on power, he, he received his power from uh, the emperors. In fact, they gave him an expanded territory, as big as his grandfather's. The way you keep a territory is, well, you keep the majority happy. He's keeping the Jews happy, so he pursues the next key Christian, Peter. His plan is lock him up and then after Passover bring him out for a show trial. And Luke wants us to see that this level of opposition, you know, the lengths that Herod will go to, to secure Peter, you know, there's four sets of four guards constantly on duty for one man. You know, it, this is overkill to hold him in there. He's serious opposition. You've got the, the sword of the government against you. You've got popular support has turned against the gospel. Even the empire's backing all to try and stop Peter, all to try and stop the message. A small God would be stopped at this point, wouldn't he? But God is not stopped. Divine intervention rescues Peter. The, the miraculous events are there on purpose to emphasise it wasn't Peter's doing. You notice what Peter was doing in prison when he gets rescued? He was sleeping. 
Uh, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, gets locked up in prison, he sings hymns. Peter's sleeping. Uh, and in verse 9, he, he's dreaming. He, he doesn't think it's really happening. Uh, you know, when, when the chains are broken, it's not in verse 7 because he did something. You know, they simply fall off. You know, Peter is stopped, but God's not. In verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel. He has rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Yeah, even, the, even the Christians who'd been praying for Peter can't believe it happens. You know, it's when he got to the door, Rhoda answers it, but she forgets to open the door. She's a little bit too excited and races off and tells her. And then the others are going, no, really? Are you sure? Now, when eventually they open up, Peter wants to make sure, pass these events on to James. Um, that's different James, not the one who's dead. Uh, this is James, who's Jesus' brother, who becomes a, a leader of the Jerusalem church. That is, Peter wants to spread it out, make it known, God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. You know, the significance of the events are all wrapped up in verse 24. The word of God continued to increase and spread. You know, God will prevail. His purposes can't be stopped. And we be careful. That's not a guarantee of personal comfort for us who follow. Uh, yesterday, getaway, uh, we had the privilege of having the word opened up to us by Wally Bean. Uh, he's a retired minister from Christchurch. Uh, it's just wonderful having a, a mature and godly man open up the scriptures to us and teach us. But it, it was powerful as well hearing uh, from him and his wife about the current state of the city of Christchurch. Uh, the church where she was converted uh, as a, a 30-year-old mother of two, it no longer exists. The church they ministered to for 20 years is now flattened. It no longer exists. Uh, they talked about how people, especially children, even their grandchildren there, are uh, living in the constant state of trauma because, yes, the major earthquakes haven't happened again, but there's consistent tremors every day, number of them every day, and you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And they shared yesterday how they understood this is a real time of testing for God's people. And they're right. You know, Acts 12 points to the fact that, yes, God is all-powerful, but that is not a guarantee of personal comfort for believers. You know, the, the passage holds together both the, the death of James and the deliverance of Peter. You know, there's no speculation here as to why Peter is spared and, and James isn't, but it drives home the point we, we can't be sure any particular servant of Christ, whether they'll follow Jesus to death or, or whether they'll be spared for longer service. But we can be sure that God's purposes will continue. His message of salvation can't be stopped. Uh, the work of Jim Elliot, people might be familiar with in the 1950s, he, he went to take the gospel to uh, the people of uh, the, the Waldani people of Ecuador. Uh, he and four other missionaries were brutally speared to death by Waldani warriors in a secret attack. Now, they weren't spared. Others in the mission were, and so the gospel kept spreading and eventually this tribe came to know and trust the Lord Jesus. We might struggle to understand why it is that the God who could protect lives doesn't always send angels to deliver. Now, why did James die and not be rescued with Peter? Why, why did Jim Elliot die, a man who you know, was passionate about sharing Jesus, a man who uh, was married with a one-year-old? Why was he not spared? Well, his widow helpfully wrote this, uh, Elizabeth. She wrote, 
Our vision is so limited we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. But the love of God did not protect his own son and he will not necessarily protect us, not from anything that it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. Acts 12 isn't dealing with why some are spared and some aren't. Instead, it's artfully revealing something about our God, the God of all power. He is unstoppable. Uh, At the start of the chapter, Herod is rampaging, James is dead, Peter's all locked up. By the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, Peter is free. The word of God is triumphing. And and that flow says something about the era we live in. At points, it seems like those who rage against God will have some success. Yes, some faithful servants will be lost. Others will be spared. But in the end, God and his message is unstoppable. And do we believe in a God of that kind of power? Is that our God? Perhaps three ways of identifying if we do. Three little expectations, three implications if we really grasp the God of all power. First is expect triumph. You know, that key verse of verse 24, the, the word continuing to increase and spread. You know, God's word will, will prevail. As the Lord says in Isaiah 55, my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, God's word triumphs. Sometimes it's a word of comfort and its purpose is to save. At other times it's a word of judgment and will confirm people in their unbelief as they hear of God. But either way it will prevail. Do we expect God's message to triumph? It can be be tempting to think that that it it is defeated. Thankfully we're not in a nation where we get persecuted for for preaching Jesus but, but most of us feel a kind of opposition to the word on a personal level, don't we? Uh, the opposition of um, indifference or disinterest. You know, I, I can't think, maybe, maybe you have, but I can't think of anyone violently reacting to me when I wanted to share the message of Jesus with them. You know, no one's wanted to lock me up, no one's even you know, aimed up to throw a punch or anything like that. You know, but I met lots of indifference. You know, my children invite uh, friends to events at church and it's met uh, by other parents. Well, it's actually, it's not met by them. There's just no reply. You don't, get an, you don't get a response back. Normally, you kind of invite for a play date. They'll at least say, no, I can't do that. You just don't get an answer. That's this opposition of disinterest. I was chatting to someone this week uh, about, I suppose, just in our conversation, we got into talking about facing death. Uh, now, this guy's in, in good health, uh, but he admitted he'd be really scared to face it. I saw it as an opportunity to, to maybe talk about hope in Christ and I just asked him, didn't say anything of Christ yet, I just asked him what he thought would happen when he died and you know, quickly just shut the conversation down and moved on to something else. You know, there is this, this constant opposition to the word of God. But God's word will prevail. A member of um, our broader church was asking a local coffee shop owner just in Burton Street, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Uh, he didn't have an answer, the coffee shop owner didn't have an answer on the spot, but he relayed one through uh, the following day and it sparked more com- conversations with him and who then asked his mother and wife who were in the shop at the time. Hours conversation went on. You know, we might face indifference and disinterest and for some of us you know, it might be a strong opposition. 
as we share the word of God with others. But, but don't give up. Don't lose heart. Uh, expect the triumph of the word of God. It won't be stopped because God is unstoppable. Now, his word will increase. His purpose will prevail. Secondly, if, we, if we've grasped a God of unstoppable power, then we give glory. We give glory. Uh, knowing it's God who prevails, we'd all be wise to give him glory rather than hang on to it for ourselves. Uh, Herod learned that lesson the hardest way possible. So you know, it's the end of the uh, events of Acts 12. After losing Peter in verse 19, uh, you know, he's frustrated. He does this kind of internal investigation uh, and the luckless guards are executed just to kind of satisfy his rage and wrath. And so then he goes on a, a, a political tour uh, to a region that were afraid of his power and dependent on him, maybe a little bit of affirmation after a bit of a loss. So in verse 21, he puts on his royal robes. Um, a non-biblical historian, Josephus, in his Antiquities, records this particular tour uh, where Herod uh, wore a garment of silver that shimmered in the sunlight. Uh, and they praised him as a god, verse 23, immediately because Herod didn't give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Uh, Josephus likewise records how uh, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Uh, And Josephus goes on to talk about how he was struck down with violent abdominal pains and within five days was dead. Herod was unwilling to give glory to God and so he perished. It's that hard edge of Psalm 58 that Colin read to us. Um, Not a kind of soft, fluffy psalm, was it? We might not expect the same swift treatment, but in the long run, anyone who won't give God his glory will face that outcome. It's a dangerous position. And it's wise for us who know the unstoppable God to not seek glory for ourselves, but give it all to him. I think the start of that is is having a right self-view. That was Herod's problem, wasn't it? He didn't understand himself. He was willing to accept praise as though he was a god. In other words, he was willing to let people live as though really it centred on him. That was his problem. He failed to understand who he was. And we need to, to cultivate in ourselves that right understanding that we might give glory off to God. You know, each day it's good to remind ourselves why do you exist as a person? I don't know how often you ask that question, but it's a great question to ask at the start of a day, isn't it? Why am I here? What am I existing for? What am I trying to achieve today? In Isaiah 43, verse 6, uh, we get why we exist. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You know that? I created them for my glory. We exist for God's glory, for his fame, for his good pleasure, for his renown. As the Westminster Shorter Confession helpfully puts it, uh, we, the chief end of man, in other words, the, the purpose of living is, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, that's the, the Copernican revolution that, that has to happen in all of us, isn't it? Where, where we realise that it's God who alone is unstoppable, not, not us, and, and we actually exist to revolve around him. He doesn't exist to fulfil our purposes. Now, if you don't live for God, you aren't being what you should be. Now, and that longing to give glory cuts into every decision, doesn't it? I was speaking to someone this week about uh, changing churches. We had, a, we had a great discussion and we agreed that the most important thing to consider was 
what's actually going to benefit the kingdom of God? It may happen, it may be that, that uh, you know, what best suits the family and, and, and what's easy to get to, would, but, but it's only the right decision if you're doing it for the glory of Christ and you just enjoy the byproducts. You know, when we grasp that it is God who's unstoppable, we, we stop seeking glory for ourselves and rather we hand it over that he might be praised, that people would think better of him, not better of us. Lastly, if we grasp the unstoppable God, then we pray earnestly. We pray earnestly. You may have noticed that was the kind of key part of the story I've left untouched from Acts 12 so far. Uh, the, the role of prayer in the deliverance of God. In verse 5, while Peter's sleeping soundly, what were the church doing? They were praying earnestly. Uh, the sense of earnest there, it's unremitting prayer, unso- unceasing, unstopping. You know, it wasn't that they were trying to twist an unwilling God's arm, but, but rather it was just their desire. And so they prayed unremittingly. They just couldn't help. They wanted to. Uh, yeah, and they recognised that they had no power, only God could act. Now here it has, has the power of the, the state and the sword, but the church has prayer, you know, the only power of the powerless. Now, their earnest prayers didn't guarantee that God would do as they requested. You know, James had died after all, but, but the way it's recorded here is, is clear God was taking their prayers on board. In the same way, uh, in Exodus 32, Moses interceded for the people of Israel. He prayed for them and God relented and showed mercy. In, in the same way here, you know, this unstoppable God responds to the cries of his people. You know, prayer actually shapes the action of God. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Yeah, when the church prays, the gospel advances. Yes, there, there is still suffering, but enemies get defeated. Uh, Paul uh, writes in 2 Corinthians 1, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. God will deliver as you help by your prayers. Earnest prayer is powerful. See, deep deep down, do do you believe in a God of all power? It will be seen in our prayer life. Are we people who pray and pray earnestly? I read an article um, on prayer. Uh, It's about 150 years old. Uh, This sentence struck me. I once thought in my ignorance that most people said their prayers and many people prayed. I've lived to think differently. I've come to the conclusion that the great majority of professing Christians do not pray. He's talking about what happens outside of when we gather for church. What struck me was, is he speaking to our age as well? Reading Acts 12 this week, I've been reminded what a tremendous power we have if we pray. Even the the believers in Acts 12, they prayed through the night. They didn't seem to realise the power. They were so shocked when Peter actually turned up in answer to their prayer. Uh, Samuel Chadwick wrote, uh, the crying need of the church is her laziness after God. And is it that we are lazy after God because we forget what earnest prayer can achieve? Not because of our earnestness, but because the, the great and unstoppable God stops to listen to me, his child. Mary Queen of Scots said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Yeah, prayer is powerful. 
The article I read went on to encourage us who've, who've grasped the power of prayer to, to pray with reverence and humility and, and to pray spiritually. That is uh, shaped by what the Spirit reveals of himself through the Word and, and to pray as a regular part of the business of life and, and to persevere you know, when your body is tired and when, you, when your mind says, actually, I might just cut my prayer time short because um, I've got other things to do. No, no, pray with faith and boldness and most of all, pray with earnestness. Pray because it's your passionate desire. The writer finishes, I want the times we live in to be praying times. I want the Christians of our day to be praying Christians. I want the church to be a praying church. My heart's desire and prayer is in sending forth this tract is to promote a spirit of prayerfulness. I want those who've never prayed yet to arise and call upon God. I want those who do pray to see that they are not praying amiss. Isn't it a privilege that we can pray? The unstoppable God would stop to listen to us. You know, we can pray alone in, in time we carve out. We can pray as we walk down the street in public transport. We can, we can pray over a meal in between courses with Christian friends. We can, we can pray in the courtyard over morning tea. We can and we must pray because we engage the unstoppable God who prevails. So I want to ask you again, how powerful and big is your God? Hopefully he's nothing short of infinite. For our God is unstoppable. Why don't we pray and give thanks for that now. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that you are great and you are mighty. We thank you that you are the one whose purposes prevail. And Father, we ask that you would help us to be living for your glory. Forgive us for the times where uh, we've done things for ourselves and for our own fame and our own glory and instead uh, reshape us, Father, to seek yours. Father, help us grasp just how powerful you are and help us to see how wonderful it is that you would stop and listen to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.